Hey, it's Sarah. And before we get to today's show, I want to remind you to subscribe and follow The Right Time with Bobani Jones. Three times a week, Bo brings you his unique take on sports, culture, and everything in between. Plus, on Fridays, he's joined by a recent guest on my podcast, the great Dominique Foxworth. You can find The Right Time wherever you get your podcasts. The Ultimate Fighter, the reality show that brings top MMA prospects together under one roof to compete for a UFC contract, is back. Stream the season premiere on Tuesday, June 1st, only on ESPN+. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Chris Caraba. I'm in the band Dashboard Confessional. My dilemma at the moment is what to do with this awful hair I've grown out during COVID. It's a common, it's a common query at the moment, I think, in the world. Ah, uh, yes pandemic hair. You're not alone. Uh, many men seem to be struggling to get back to regular haircuts after they've realized the the relative ease of going full forest beast, unkempt and untamed with a beard crawling up the sides of their face and hair down to their butt. But in your case, I mean, you're a rock star, so you can pretty much do anything with your look and people will think it's artistic and badass and part of the brand. You could get away with what you're doing now, but since you asked, I will offer my two cents. I actually dig the shaved sides, sort of slightly poofy, but still slicked back, long, but not quite shoulder length thing you had going a couple years ago. Very rock star. Uh, and also, as I tell men over the age of 30-ish, if you still got all your hair and it's good hair like yours, then in honor of the men who don't, you are required to do cool shit with it. It's the rule. Sorry. That's what she said. Friends, how are we feeling this week? I am in a fantastic mood. I got to go to my first two Cubs games of the year last week. We had our Red Stars home opener with a full awesome fun tailgate beforehand. The weather's good. Masks are optional for us vaccinated folks, and the world is kind of seeming to get back to normal. Um, I'm also mostly ignoring the news right now. Uh, just a just a personal choice. Uh, I think we've all been through some stuff together. You realize I was hitting a wall, so... Uh, I will I will return to being informed at some point. Uh, but for right now, I'm focusing on the good stuff. And uh, one of the things that's good is this conversation that I had with Dashboard Confessional frontman Chris Caraba. Um, I've sort of struck up a friendship via social media with him over the last few years. And uh, he definitely provided the soundtrack for many of young Sarah Spain's super angsty emo feels. Uh, and also several quotes from my AOL Instant Messenger away message <laughs> back in the day uh if you're a certain age uh, you can just fire up screaming infidelities or hands down or vindicated or any of those songs to be transported back immediately to a very specific time in your life and you will whether you like it or not not by choice subconsciously even suddenly start you know screaming along with the lyrics i know that because i i did that in a grocery store a while back when a dashboard jam came on um, it was it was really cool to get to talk to Chris, and it was a good time for it because um, beyond all the stuff that we talked about with his career and, and the surrealness of looking back on doing MTV Unplugged and what's coming up next, we also talked about a bad motorcycle accident that he had during the pandemic and sort of his approach to healing, 
to getting back to music, to life in general. And it's such a fantastic point of view and something we can all consider as we're moving back sort of to normal, but still reflecting on what we learned during these pandemic times. Um, Speaking of normal, they also have an upcoming Unplugged tour just announced. It starts September of 2021 and then goes to over two dozen cities in the U.S. It's their first big string of shows uh, since the pandemic interrupted their uh, 20th anniversary tour last year. So I got my tickets. I'm ready to rock out. Um, And I can't wait for you guys to listen to this pod. That's what she said. So a couple years ago, I'm scrolling through my Instagram and I see a post liked by Chris Caraba, a.k.a. Dashboard Confessional star, a.k.a. someone that I spent most of my collegiate years just obsessively listening to. And I thought, what, what's he doing here? And it lead, led me to many questions about, is he interested in sports? Does he watch, you know, around the horn? Did he see me tweeting about how excited I was when I was walking through the grocery store and they were jamming some Dashboard Confessional? Like, what's going on here? And then we became sort of Instagram friends. And now he's here. So I can finally ask all the questions and pick the brain and learn about all the music that I um, that I love so much. So I'm I'm so glad you're here. And I found out that you were born in West Hartford, Connecticut. Is that in any way? Does that well, mean Hartford. that you're an ESPN fan? Yeah, uh, that area is time. right near Bristol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in and around a lot of people that I knew in my like neighborhood growing up, like worked for ESPN, you know, menial jobs or whatever, but support jobs, support staff, not menial by any means. Uh, just not like this star on, on, on screen star or anything like that. But yeah, like ESPN is a big deal in Connecticut. It's a big deal everywhere, but the industry of ESPN is a huge deal to Connecticut. Yeah. So I I loved finding out that fact about you. So you're there for um, 15 or so years before you moved. That's a tough age to move, especially from Connecticut to Florida. So Yeah, I was not super gracious about it, Sarah. I will admit this. My poor mother. (laughs) Oh, in terms of giving your parents grief for it. I gave my mom such grief, man. I gave her such grief, but uh, she was right. It 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 was a good move. So your parents got divorced when you were young from that age, like three or four years old. Did you spend a lot of time with your dad going back and forth or was it mostly staying in one spot? I went with my dad's family a lot, uh, not my dad, but I did see, I, I did go like on the weekends to see his family and his family is my family, I should say, but his side of the family, they're extraordinary. and I love them so much. And they're all, they're all in West Hartford, Connecticut. And they all live like we're a huge Italian family, Sarah. <laughs> and we all live, they all live like within maybe three square miles of each other. And like my brother and I, my brother who's still in Florida and I'm in Tennessee are like the only ones that like really left. So we're the total weirdos in our family <laughs> that we've, we've gone. We, they were they were like they thought we were weird when we moved 20 minutes away. <laughs> I love that. OK, so you're still you're living with your mom. Um, at what point does your mom get remarried? Um, I think I must have been just about 14, I think, when my mom got married again to my stepdad. He was a wonderful guy. Um, and that precipitated our moving out of town. Got it. Okay. All right. So that's a lot for a kid. Tell me who Connecticut Chris was. What were you into and what did you like? Okay. I was into one thing, skateboarding. Okay. I mean, it was, it was everything. There a good skateboard I mean, I, scene out in Hartford? There wasn't. So, 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 but I had found... You know, like I'm like your, you know, your typical musician. I didn't quite fit in any place until I found whatever the thing was. And before music, it was skateboarding, and it was the very first thing that I, I loved sports. But you know, I'm short, and I was picked last. All those things that make you just like <laughs> sort of like not have confidence. But I, I, I had discovered 
with skateboarding, and I think it's what people discover with every every individual sport if they're exposed to it is that you know I can excel. I'm competing against myself. I got really good, and I got became obsessed with it. So, but this, by the way, sir, this is like this was in an era where that was that was not cool. <laughs> not get cool by being good at skateboarding. <laughs> it was like you were a washout, burnout kind of, that was kind of the scene you would, you were relegated to. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you're skateboarding, um, you're adjusting to, um, seeing your, your, your dad's family and, and hanging with your mom a lot, not seeing your dad a lot. And then you move to Florida. So how does Florida Chris adjust or is there a big adjustment that's required? So the, there's a, the, I hesitate as I answer this question because it turned out so well, but the transition was not easy for yeah. me. And that was because having just discovered skateboarding, I had finally found a thing, but it also gave me a few really good friends. I mean, there weren't many of us, but we really stick together, stuck together. And I found like, you know, at that age, you, when you like fall for a girl or a boy, you like fall really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had that happen that summer before we moved. So, you know, I was like lovelorn. Plus I felt I had finally cracked the code of how to be a person. And suddenly I was like booted. Um, but when I got to Florida, first thing that happened was um, I realized that, you know, because we rolled in around October, August, right? And so like, I was like, okay, cool, it's summer. And September rolled in and like in Connecticut, as you know, like September's like winter. By then it's like, it just can come at you hard. And I was like, wait a minute, I can still skate. Like suddenly dawned on me that now I can skate all year. Yeah. And there was like a skate and surf culture there. It was like, I lived by the beach, like a mile from the beach. And it was like, I, it didn't instantly make you like a cool person, but there were cool people to meet within the scene. And I right. loved it. And it yeah. was incredible. And then that led to the music scene, which is like, you know, the skateboarding and the music scene have always been um, in lockstep. And, uh, I had been into music through skateboarding, all the skateboarding videos and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, they had shows in Connecticut. There's a great like youth crew kind of scene in Connecticut, but not like in West Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> so I hadn't yeah. been exposed to it till I got down near Fort Lauderdale. And so mm -hmm. I just, it just was, was where I needed to be at that time and lucked into uh, the situation with my mom finding a job there. So you didn't, do the school choir or band or anything back in Connecticut? I may have done choir once. <laughs> Just the uh, once. I did do choir when I got to, when I, I figured out this great, this great way to beat the system when I moved to Florida. There was like all these, like, they had all these like honors classes that, that, that seemed really easy to me. Like, cause I don't know, I knew, I understood music theory from something I had learned when I was a kid. And so when I like went to like, I just tried, my mom suggested it and I tried, I tried to, I never sang one note in the entire, I was in course three years in, in high school, never sang a note. Why? Like, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified to sing. So I you loved music and you were I in a choir and you never sang, you just, did anyone standing next to you notice that nothing was coming out? Everyone, everyone. <laughs> but, but I would answer like the questions about music theory. And so like, okay. I would get like, our section, like the tenor section, would have an answer to like whatever, what's the key right. for this song or whatever. And so I would, I was of value to that group. So they kept my secret. Right. Why were you okay and comfortable answering questions, but not singing? 
do you ever sing in front of people? Yeah, I used to I, I used to be a singer. I had to get surgery on my vocal cords and now I can only sing like dude parts and rap, unfortunately. But <laughs> These are listen, fun, if if a question is ever would I be too shy to do anything, the answer is no. <laughs> Okay, I was, I, I wasn't, I'm not so sure that the shyness was, yeah, who am I kidding? I was too shy. I was just too shy. Why do you think you so were shy? So the thing is, if like there's pe people can either do it in front of people or they can't do it in front of people, but the same person can change, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But there is no in between, like, oh, I'll kind of try it, I guess. There is no in between. <laughs> yeah, I was charging family members a, a fee to come to my concerts <laughs> when I was like seven. So yeah, slightly different. Um, why do you think you were so shy? Was it the typical musician story of you just didn't know where you fit in? Um, I think I, hmm, why was I so shy? Never stopped to really consider why I was so shy. I just was shy. I know that I wasn't a confident singer, which wasn't the same as being the same as my shy, shyness. But I was beginning to come out of my shell around that time. I think um, guitar led me out of that. Like skateboarding and guitar led me into being like in front of people comfortably. Yeah. But not singing. Singing came much, much later. Oh, I think it's so funny. It's like some of the greatest performers have terrible anxiety on stage. Some of the greatest performers were like really shy and they just like to impersonate other people or become another character. And that's where they can really shine in, in their own body. They're 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 a little bit uh, withdrawn, which I always find fascinating. OK, so did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a I, it's all very 90s. I have one full brother. <laughs> I have a half sister and I have a stepbrother, I have a stepsister. Uh it's a blended family. Um okay. and we're all very we're all very close. Was your so you grew up uh all of your childhood with one brother? Yeah, my brother okay. Nick. Was he shy? No, not at all. My brother <laughs> Nick has an absurd level of confidence. Okay. It, that might be it then. You never know. It, it's so strange to me. Like he's he walks through life like without being cocky at all. Like he's just confident that he's the best. <laughs> is he? And it's, is and he I'm often? so, he is always the best. He's the funniest. He's definitely the smartest. He's the best. Oh, that's nice. What a nice feeling. I guess he's right. I can't right. fault right. him he's, if he's just right. He's, he's actually just a realist is really what's happening. <laughs> he is. That's all it is. Um, okay, so tell me about deciding that you wanna get into music outside of choir and actually allow notes out of your mouth. So my brother, my stepbrother, Bill, had a guitar and he started taking some lessons. And uh, we figured like maybe that's like a two for one if I like he just told me what he learned at his lesson. <laughs> Didn't really work, but it got me interested. And I and I started like just like borrowing his guitar. And I, I um, my uncle, Angelo, gave me a guitar, gave me an acoustic guitar that he found in his basement. Like my cousin <laughs> Mia and, and her friend were were cleaning out the basement and they found it and the friend said i think your cousin chris would want to play this and she did, like nobody knew that i was interested in guitar and they suddenly i had a guitar like just wow. when i became interested in it so i had this, this is I, very italian by the way it's so italian your uncle angelo and your cousin mia were just cleaning yeah, yeah. out the basement <laughs> yeah but what about the fact that it was like her friend who i had a crush on by the way was like, I think I must have must have been like, oh, I love guitar. That made right. me sound cool, right? So that yeah. must be where I planted the seed. Nice, nice. Who knows? <laughs> it always stems from that. Um, okay, so you start playing. And when did you actually get into your first band? Uh, in high school, I got into a band. And I was just playing guitar. And I started writing, like, immediately when I was, when I, part of my, like, journey as a guitar player, 
was because I couldn't afford guitar lessons and they didn't offer them at my school like they did at my stepbrothers, I didn't know how to learn songs, but I knew how to like instinctively sort of knew how to like write songs. And I knew mm -hmm. like if I put those chords together, I'd kind of remember the order more easily than if I tried to sound out a, a song that existed. So that was that was why I started playing with other people. And that's why I started writing songs. And and um, and I would write the lyrics and I'd sing and write the melody and I'd sing it to whoever was going to sing the song. That would be the extent of my singing. Just an example. Here's here's how it should go. So the Vacant Andes, you were not the front man. In the Vacant Andes, that wasn't my first band. That was a pretty early band for me. And I was like, that was a band that was like, I there was like 15 members before I ever joined. <laughs> but I was not the singer of that band to begin with. I did sing before it was over. That's the band that I started singing in. And it was because my bass player, who is my best friend, who eventually become the for, for a good long time, the bass player for Dashboard, Dan Bonebreak, kind of said to me, like, enough is enough with you showing this guy how to sing. Just you sing it's the songs you write. He'll sing the songs he, he writes. Basically, I don't have time for this. Right. That's like, you guys are you Tough love. Yeah, tough love. But he was also willing to, like, sit with me as I went through trial and error and realized, yeah, that sounds pretty bad, dude. You should try this. Maybe <laughs> maybe don't sing that note. I don't know. Right. So he was really helpful. I mean, he was a really educated. Maybe, maybe write the song a key lower, maybe an octave he lower. He definitely <laughs> always said that. Yeah. Always. just like, try to find the right key, dude. <laughs> some, some of these notes are not your notes. Right. Okay. So you end up at Florida Atlantic and you're studying education. Um, was there still this dream of being a musician for a job or was it, I like music on the side and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be a teacher? Well, there was a period in the music scene that I was from where like, you could never conceive that you would make it and not have to have a job. Right. So to make it meant like I could be in a band, but I could have a job that I got to leave sometimes. So for me, that was like, well, a teacher would be a great job for that. You have, theoretically, you have some time off every year. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would have like two jobs. That was the, that was the biggest I could dream at the time. So did you play all through college? I played all through college. Yeah. We toured, I toured, I stopped going to college a couple of times so that I could <laughs> go go on tour and and I also was non-committal when it came to school. I, I did fine, but I just was like that was not the journey I was on. Right. The so, college experience didn't happen for me, if that makes sense. Really? Like the just traditional not, not what so you'd much. imagine I mean, like with friends and like a, partying. Well, we had it in the music scene. So I I was getting it and I was at the right age to get it, but it just happened to be not at school. Right, right, right. So all of that stuff like social existence was mostly outside of school. And then you would go to class occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd roll into class on my skateboard sometimes. Did you have to teach yourself stage presence or did it come naturally once you just decided to get all in on the music? In a, in a band dynamic, I found it very easy to have stage presence because I felt it was like responsive. It was reactionary to what other people were doing. It took me a long time to figure out my own stage presence as a solo performer, which I, you know, I eventually became a solo performer. That was a, that was a tougher journey to, to, to find a comfortable place for that. Right. What kind of music were the Vacant Andes and the agency? Were you always into the same style um, or did it develop into something later that became the sort of emo stylings of Dashboard? I think it was, it started heading there, but it started off uh, very different. It was mostly pop punk and then some like with a healthy dose of post hardcore mixed in there and skateboard some skateboard tunes, some skateboard tunes. And then, yeah. uh, and then, you know, they had the, the, um, I think what, what kind of maybe started heading us 
down a road that was more signature because he also listened to a lot of college radio at the time. Right. So pavement and REM and things like that. Yeah. So you leave school, you're teaching at an elementary school in South Florida, special ed. Well, I was at a, I was a special ed aide at the time and I was going to be a special ed teacher. That was my plan. Got but it. I was a preschool teacher and I ran the after school program with a was the assistant director of an after school program. And then I would I had various jobs within that same elementary school because I was still in college. God, and I, I, just, I had I had another semester to go before student teaching. So I had another year to go. Excuse me. I wonder how many rock stars were also preschool teachers. It doesn't <laughs> seem like the Venn diagram would cross over in terms of like qualities and um, you're, you have a very easy way about you. You're, you have, you're soft-spoken and I think would kids would like you a lot. Uh, that requires a lot of patience. Do you have that? I do. I do have a lot of patience. Impressive. Well, I have patience with, yeah, I have patience. I guess I have patience. I've been, I've had lack of patience lately, but I think it's because like the world is standing still. Yeah, I think we all do. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Universal. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so were you out of school when you started Further Seems Forever? No, I was still in school when I started further. I was still in school when I started Dashboard, uh, but I had very little college left to do. But I was starting to look at the landscape. Once once I started further, we started to do well, like nationally. So I was like, do I finish school? Don't I finish school? I was really, I was grappling with it. Right. So you are in this band further seems forever you're starting to find some success and people are interested and they like what you're doing and in a moment of overwhelming emotion um you decide to instead of writing down your thoughts about stuff that was going on in your life you put it onto tape and this was the genesis of dashboard confessional which i i kind of love that there's this great quote that i love the best work is done with the heartbreaking or overflowing I, I tend to find people who are like madly in love or terribly heartbroken need to like express that somehow. Um, so what was going on in your life that caused you to feel like further seems forever isn't the outlet. Neither is just sitting down with a friend and talking to them or going to a therapist or whatever outlets there are. What was it that was going on that, that made you open up this, this solo project? Well, there were, is like like everything in life is a confluence of things. Um, further itself, like the, the inner band dynamic became challenging and I didn't really know how to handle it. I didn't like quite have the life skills for that. And there was like like a tragedy happened within our family. And that was that really, really messed me up. And then I had like a pretty bad heartbreak, which I think I, I used as a thing that I thought was okay to frame the songs within. Mm. But I don't think it was the biggest thing. I think it was more like the tr the tragedy that I had just faced and was not would take a long time to get through within our family that really influenced the feeling the the the, the unsettled feeling and the, the need to make sense of it all. And you know, to your point, I think that um, there's like no great songs about things just being okay. Right. Like, see, the things are amazing, or man, this is like the worst. <laughs> right. I think that, songs, those are the two places. Songs about live. things being like meh are probably not very interesting. Right? No. <laughs> There's not a lot of heart in that. Um, yeah. And and maybe the solo project felt like a safer space if the the leading emotion was that tragedy. It's easy to talk to people about heartbreak or love and bring that well, it was, further, but maybe, it, you know, that felt too personal it, to take to them. It was too, you, know, you nailed it. It felt too personal to just like share even with your bandmates, which is like still a safe, pretty safe place. You know, it's like, 
solid, almost, you know, it's a place of solitude, usually like some garage somewhere, right? There's nobody watching, but it still just felt weird. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it, but I could just sing it into a right. tape recorder. And make it about a girl, even if not everything was actually about love or heartbreak. Yep. Um, did you ever get around to figuring that out, that tragedy and what it did to you? Or is it still hovering in your body somewhere waiting to finally be talked about and expelled and dealt with? Jeez, I, I think I, I've, I've learned. To, I think we've all. Well, I can speak for myself. I think I've learned to live with it. Um, and that's the best you can do sometimes. It's interesting. I, I always kind of thought that that was the case for many people. And then Chelsea Handler wrote a book about her brother, um, she was very close with growing up, part of a bigger family that was kind of wild and crazy. And he was her anchor. He went on a hiking trip and died in a tragic accident. I think he was maybe 18 or 19. And it was not until Donald Trump was elected that it triggered this feeling of lack of control in her that she hadn't felt since when her brother died and she had no control mm. over his death and what happened to her family as a result and how they mourned and how it broke them apart. And she couldn't figure out why she was losing her marbles so much over this election and went to therapy. And after all these sessions, it finally broke open that she had never actually dealt with that. She just carried it with her and buried it. And so ever since that, I found it interesting, I was listening to this other podcast about emotions being um, actual parts of our body. That's why they're called feelings and not thinkings. And if we don't let them completely process and then end them the way we would like a bear chasing us and then stopping running and breathing, we never tell our body that it's over. So it's just still in there because we never gave it that moment of like, anyway, it's all very uh, existential, but it's interesting to me when I hear about people who have this thing that they couldn't figure out in the moment, I always wonder if they came back to it later or just moved on. I don't know if you ever really like move on from those kinds of things, you know, all the way. But yeah. you know, I've I've uh, I've managed to continue. Uh, it's interesting when you're an artist, you kind of want to keep all these things like right. within reach. So it's hard to get rid of them. It's hard to let them go because they actually are are useful in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I don't know which thing is healthier, but I know <laughs> which thing is more potent. And that's kind of keeping it with me in some that's fashion. So true. That's like when we um we we root for bands to like uh, the lead singer to break up because we're like, oh, the, the albums are so much better when they're really <laughs> unhappy. So like this, I don't I don't like his work when he's happy. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? My favorite word. Oh man, that's tough. Um, obsequious. It's my favorite word. It's impossible Ooh. to use without Ooh. sounding totally pretentious obsequious meaning of course obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree marked by or exhibiting a fawning attentiveness so this word came about in the late 15th century from the latin meaning simply dutiful or compliant service but by the 1590s it had taken on sort of the pejorative sense of fawning sycophantic um, and you're right, Chris, because sycophant is a word I absolutely use, but obsequious is just not in my vocabulary. Until now, I will make it so. Let me practice. Uh, I had to avoid being an obsequious fangirl during this interview, despite having a gigantic crush on Chris Caraba in college. <laughs> Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is reduplicative. This is a word that contains two identical or very similar parts like hanky-panky, mamby-pamby, dilly-dally, wishy-washy. Uh, coming from the 15th century, it started out as just borrowing from other languages like the French, mama, papa. And then in uh, about 1530, so-so became the first native 
English formation of a reduplicative. Um, and they can rhyme, but they don't have to. It just uh, it just can be identical parts like din din or goody goody. Uh, but most have a little bit of a twist in the second half, like flip flop or ding dong. Um, and I can't wait to deliver a sentence full of reduplicatives. Uh, instead of a sentence with the word reduplicative, I will do a sentence with reduplicatives in it. If you followed that, here you go. A bunch of super duper drunk ding-dongs tried to cut through an art display in the park after not reading the teeny weeny mumbo jumbo on the sign, causing them to zigzag through a hodgepodge of artsy fartsy hoity toity fuddy duddies en route to the pizza place. I would like to do that again. That was extremely fun. A bunch of super-duper drunk ding-dongs tried to cut through an art display in the park after not reading the teeny-weeny mumbo-jumbo on the sign, causing them to zigzag through a hodgepodge of artsy-fartsy-hoity-toity-fuddy-duddies en route to the pizza place. See if you followed. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, so I love the name Dashboard Confessional, and uh, explain how you get to that name. Well, um, at this time, I was like couch hopping and many nights just living in my van, which I'd kind of converted with a bed in the back for touring. So like that van, that space was like, that's the only place I had real like solitude, you know, time to my, my, myself. And I remember um, I had parked by an inlet and I was just playing guitar in the back of the van, writing a little song. And I said, I, I sung this little part that said on the way home, this car, here's my confessions. And it kind of was a, a tribute to the, the fact that I had this this safe this place that was mine mm. that I that I could go that I could just say what what I what what heavy things I felt that needed to be dealt with out loud and I had ownership of it so I wrote in the corner like dashboard confessional like if I ever start another band maybe I'll I'll call it that and then I kind of forgot about it for another month or two and then before you know it I had like a pile of songs that were all related to each other and one of those songs on the page had that. And I, I said, okay, I'll call it. If I had known it was gonna be a career lasting <laughs> thing, like 20 years, I might've shortened the name some. No. It's a, it's it's a mouthful. So, it's, and it's memorable and it's unique and it like makes you think you're what dashboard confessional. Um, so Swiss Army Romance is the first, first album. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. Cause I mean, that's the one so many people know uh, Screaming Infidelities. What order, was that one of the first ones you wrote? Was it one of the later? I think it was the third song I wrote in that in that batch of time, which I feel my memory serves. There must be like twelve songs on that record or something like that. And then I it's I get a little confused because the timeline for the first two records, which is the Swiss Army Romance and the places you've come to fear the most, was something like six three to six months or something like that. So I I think I have the order right in my head of which right. songs came in which right. order. I meant to ask you if we can play a couple songs on the podcast. Have at it. Okay, cool. Let's do it. So, all right, well, let's listen to a second here of Screaming Infidelities. Reading your note over again, and there's not a word that I comprehend except when you signed it. I love you always and forever. Making out 
Oh my gosh. It just brings like every time I hear the song, it brings me back to these moments, particularly in my college dorm with AOL instant messenger open. And I can see that the boy I have a crush on is like on there. And is he going to write me? And what's he doing tonight? And what are they doing at the frat? And all just, I mean, it's, it so captures that emotion, the, the emo of being a young person and everything means so much. Every time someone rejects you, it's the end of the world. And every time someone smiles your direction, you, they basically have then told you that they love you. Um, so those, yeah, those albums, feelings. yeah, those albums kind of cross over in part because Screaming Infidelis ended up on the places you've come to fear the most. Was that, um, in part because it was clearly a hit song and after you had success with the first one they were like let's have a second album that feels like a bigger release so no actually the version that got big was the one from the places you've come to feel the Mm. most it was whatever one you heard first whoever you are (laughs) is the one that was like the definitive one for you but the one that actually got on the radio was from the second record and the, the way that came to pass was that I put that record out with my friend, Amy. She put it out on, on her record label, the first one. Uh, Swiss Army Romance came out on Fiddler Records. So it's just a, another college kid put it out. She had an opportunity to sell that record to another label. And that label had was interested in signing me, but I had told them, I'm, I'm still gonna talk to all the labels that I could possibly, which weren't many. And there was another one that made a much, much better, better sense to me as a home for my records. And when I decided that's where I was gonna sign, that label that had bought Swiss Army Romance shelved it in spite, kind of. And mm. um, and then would later release it in like Men Fences and all that stuff. Uh, there, no no bad feelings whatsoever. But I think that they were like, well, yeah, why would, I, to their credit, like why would they keep putting a record out if the guy decided to go somewhere else? Right. Um, but suddenly I had no way to get that. I didn't own that record anymore at that period of time. Got I didn't it. own the record. I didn't have a chance. And I really liked that song. I liked singing it. So I was like, well, and it, by the way, it had only at that point, if it had sold, I don't know, 20,000 copies, I'd be shocked. Right. So I thought like, you know, I'll, which was a lot by the way back then, but right, nonetheless, right. nonetheless, I felt like it's not enough that I can't put this out. Right. Again. And it's probably so two songs from the, right. Repeat. Uh, for many people, and may, maybe just me, but probably for a lot of people, what I'm actually remembering is that I heard Screaming Infidelities and The Places You Come to Fear the Most and then liked it so much that I went back and bought the other album and just mixed them all up in my head in terms of Yeah, because they were all, it was all out at once. Yeah. Just, so, they, all, they came out on top of each other, yep. When compared to your success with um, other groups and where you saw your music career going and everything else, how overnight did Dashboard Confessional and the success it saw feel? Or do we react to it that way on the other side and you point out that you toured and recorded and pitched it and did everything else? Or was it as overnight as it feels in the storytelling? I mean, the story is way better if it's overnight. <laughs> and I like I like the sound of that a lot better. It just sounds cooler, cleaner to tell. <laughs> but, you know, there was also, you know, several, there was also a couple good two, three years of like touring, like no kidding, like 300 days of the year. Um, with Dashboard. Sometimes playing like, yeah, playing with mm-hmm. Dashboard. Because I think when I had, I think the real watershed moment was like somewhere in towards the end of 2001 would be my guess. So I had toured from two, just two, two straight years without going home. Hmm. Um, so it didn't feel overnight to me. Now, like in retrospect, it's pretty fast. It's pretty fast, especially like without having, with you know, not being on a label at first, not being on a major label by then, not um, having you know, Spotify and things like YouTube. Right. Um, 
it's pretty it was it was pretty ludicrous yeah i'm looking but at i did have napster Na- oh that was helpful napster i was Super i was helpful. a limewire girl because i was like napster oh, yeah, people awesome. get caught for limewire is <laughs> totally fine even though it's like the exact same thing um <laughs> So the places you have come to fear the most released in March of 01 and it sold 2,500 copies in the first week, but then by August it was at 40,000. And then by the end of the year it was at 65,000. And then by the middle of the next year, it was over 200,000, then 400. So it was growing in, you under start to understand people are, I'm sure at your concerts now singing along with the music and you're now being able to book your own gigs instead of just opening and, 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 supporting act um and then was it mtv unplugged was that really the moment where you're like oh shit like this yeah. is real i'm still like oh shit this is real <laughs> when i think about mtv unplugged. so just you and eric clapton and pearl jam no, <laughs> no nirvana no big deal <laughs> um yeah i mean to put it into further perspective like the show was off the air it had I don't know when the last one was was aired, but I knew that it was over. And I'd really love that series. Mm. Like those two things, like uh, 120 minutes and MTV Unplugged were like were like my my part of MTV that I loved. Yeah. I really loved them. So I was on that trajectory that you were describing a moment ago and at where I thought the peak was. I was like, this is what could be better or bigger than this. This is incredible. And after a show I played in New York. A guy walked in and he explained who he was. His name was Alex Coletti. He was the creator and producer of MTV Unplugged. And he had not done Unplugged in years. He was done, moved on from it. And what he'd seen at my shows with the way people were singing along to an acoustic, driving acoustic kind of bass thing was what he'd always hoped he would see. This is what he's told me at uh, MTV Unplugged. And he asked me, if, if, I, if I revive the show for you, will you do it? And I was, you know, uh, the answer was yes, obviously. <laughs> but the other thing that was like uh, astonishing to me that I would later learn, learn in my, in my like, it's not really hubris if you're just too green to know, right? Right. But in my youth and inexperience, I didn't realize that the only people that had done MTV Unplugs and Plugs before were, you know, Platinum Acts. Wow. And so we were the first non-Platinum Acts. You were to gold, do... right? The, your album had gold. No, I don't gold. even think. Maybe I, not yet. Maybe we were by then. I don't right. think we were by then. It, we could have been. But that, and then we did MTV Unplugged and it went platinum. Yeah. So, you know, it was a, the power, it was a powerful um, culmination of like the people on LimeWire and Napster, like sharing my music with everybody. That's really how it happened. Like, you've got to hear this thing that I love. Hmm. Like if people hadn't said that to somebody and that they hadn't repeated it again and again, then I wouldn't be sitting here with a chance to talk with, with you today, sir. <laughs> um, and when I, when I think back, like to me, the marker of success for what the fans did on their own for my career was me getting an MTV on, was getting me an MTV unplugged. Oh, that's a lovely way to think of it. Um, I, when you look back then, it sounds like you look fondly upon the Napsters of the world because at your level, you were kind of needed it to spread the word. It's almost like a Spotify of today. There are fees to have a membership to Spotify, but there's plenty of people who use it for free and then don't buy albums because of it. And then the question is, you know, how are the artists making money off the popularity of things? Um, and the same questions were were vacillating and, and, and moving around the, the Napster and LimeWire space. Um, but for your experience, it was positive. My experience was extremely positive, And I'll tell you why. I did not think I would ever make a dime off of music. And so that was never like, 
really the factor by which I would make my decisions or set my goals. So the idea that I'd be making less money by pe because people were sharing this thing for free would never bother me because I had no way to get them to pay for it in the first place. I didn't have right. a, dis a distributor. I wasn't on a label at that point. At some point I was on a label, but I still had bad distribution. So it's like the record wasn't available to even buy. They People that wanted it were finding a way to get it. And I just, I just loved it. I loved that they were like, that it was, um, well, peer to peer. There's no other way to put it. So this is a very quick sort of, it's a different time, uh, late 90s, early 2000s in terms of a presentation. Um, but how much went into your record label, particularly leading up to your unplugged performance, talking to you about who you are in terms of like your look? Because you did have the 90210 kind of sideburn, tight and high hair vibe um, going and it was your music was was emo and it looked like the look that went with it even if it was authentic and organic was like the 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 nice guy with an edge is that what you were going for did they tell you what to go for no one did um huh. once well oh, once once oh yeah once oh i rebelled in such an idiot <laughs> idiotic fashion too. um you know i had a pompadour at the time yeah and and sideburns very jason priestley like, very Jason Priestley, but yeah, I'd like very, to very the guy from the Heights. Elvis, or, was it, was or, the Heights Jason, the show that came I, after? Which was how do you talk to an angel? What show was that? Oh yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, that guy also had a hell of a pompadour. Yeah, that was it. Was in the Zeitgeist. It was the Heights. And, Nailed uh, it. Nice. Useful knowledge still living in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> and it paid off. Look, there it was. Um, one time, right after the unplugged, I think maybe. Um, and you'll find these pictures. I know it was in like, I, I it was teen people or something like that that I was in, <laughs> where I was told to get a haircut. I should get a haircut, but it was more like you you have to get a haircut, dude. You're starting to look like, you know, you forgot to take care of your look. And I was like, I'm more than just whatever, a haircut. And I let my hair grow and I wouldn't brush it either. And it was just this awful mess. I'm going to send you the picture later. I can't Sarah. wait. It's awful. I mean, your and hair then, is the, the thing. Second... It's, a, it's, it's, it's gone through many phases. It's gone through many phases. It's not in a great one now, I'll admit, but <laughs> but it has gone through many phases. But all of them, none of them were contributed. No, none of them were like the benefit of like groupthink. Okay, like that. that's interesting. I wonder if that's the, is it though? The like, kind, I mean, like, well, did, it's did first it, of all, you're a appear? dude. You're a dude. Oh, that's so. true. I don't think any woman gets to wait go through minute, any part minute, of life without being told. Sure, wait a minute. <laughs> that's totally true. Okay, okay. So the answer to the question, or the question, isn't like specifically did the label do it but which of my friends told me and it was all my girlfriends told me how to cut my hair and Interesting. all that yeah yeah this yeah, is the vibe yeah, yeah. this is the vibe to go my for friend kelly to get the my screaming kelly gals Hoffman, yeah who's an incredible uh stylist now already was showing that she could do that way back then hmm. um she set my look up. so many of your songs all of your songs are so deeply felt. There's, you know, there's great listicles that are like which dashboard confessional song to listen to when your favorite show is canceled or like which dashboard lyric. <laughs> which, really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, or like which <laughs> dashboard lyrics best suit your current heartbreak. Like they're all so deeply felt. Um, let's listen to a little of, of this song, Hands Down. Hands down, this is the best thing I can ever remember. Oh, 
Okay. So of course you're writing these things because you're feeling these things. Is there any part of you going back to your skateboard roots or punk or anything else that feels like I'm being too emo or I'm being too emotional? Like, was, was there a push to make you less open about your emotions and your music? Because I think that's what's so appealing about your music. Isn't this, there's no false machismo of I'm a man and I'm not allowed to be heartbroken all, over all this stuff. It sounds so authentic. Um, but society would have you believe that, you know, you're supposed to evolve into, you know, bitches ain't shit. Yeah. Society would have you think that I, I was always, I always found that a little gross. Yeah. Um, some people find it gross to explore your feelings that openly, but I don't, I will say though that I did later come to steer away from that a little bit and I regret it. Hmm. I regret that I, I had a period of my career where I thought, Oh, maybe I, I ought to not write less honestly, but like, write less often about the really deep stuff, the deeply felt stuff. And that was a mistake. Sometimes emo is used as an insult. Um, often when I talk about my early 20s, I'll just say it was so emo. It was like, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to change the world? How am I going to make money? Who's ever going to love me? What's going to happen? Yada, yada. But it's as a music you know, genre, it's not really quote unquote in right now, but it never really goes away. There's always a market for it. Did you ever feel like it was not seen the way you wanted it to, or that the way people talked about emo didn't reflect what you actually thought the genre was? There have been times that I felt that. Yeah. Really specifically, there was like a, you know, mid middle of my career where I was watching what was happening around me, like that was now being called emo. And I didn't think it like applied. And I started to realize, well, maybe it doesn't apply to me then. And it does apply to them. It's supposed to evolve, you know, it's supposed to be somebody else's. But, but like with more hindsight or more, more um, life experience, you start to realize, no, no, that stuff was just kind of watered down in that period. And it, 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 it really wasn't. And it kind of, it kind of gave the scene a bad name. Did you feel like you wanted to evolve your music in an intentional way or that you were always going to approach the music you created with, this is where I am right now. Because I think there's times that that's done sort of commercially and it doesn't work when artists try to evolve and it doesn't feel organic to them. And then there's other times, like I always think of Taylor Swift as someone who like started out and it made sense for her to be 14 or 15 and play simple, sweet country songs. And she didn't have the voice power at the time to do the bigger stuff anyway. And then she kind of grew into herself. And I think what she does now, whether it's like the more folklore kind of stuff or the big pop ballads, like they all feel organic to her, even though I know they're crazy produced and they're extremely mainstream. It never, it felt like natural to me. And then there are other artists that I think transition into something that sounds different and it just doesn't work. It doesn't feel like that's who they are. And so did you ever get encouraged to change inorganically? Yes, I was encouraged to, but, and I did a couple of times, you know, there's, I wouldn't say like ever like whole portions of my career, but I would try it on a song or two because I was, I was of the opinion that these people that I had, that had been in this industry for so many decades, maybe some of these record executives, for example, had to have some perspective that I had to trust in. That's why I signed with them. And I'm not saying they were wrong. I was right to, to try to follow their lead, but it turned out, I think I was also right with my instincts and I should, and, and when I veered back to them, it resonated with my audience and with a growing audience way more. Right. So a couple of years after the, um, 
unplugged. You do a song for Spider-Man 2, so that gets pretty big. Um, and a couple more gold records. And it feels like you're you're creating a new album every couple of years. And then all of a sudden there's this big stretch um, where you're working on just some other side projects and collaborating, doing stuff like painting, designing clothes, all sorts of artistic endeavors outside of music. What was going on for that couple of years and why did you step away from what felt like uh, had become sort of um, a pattern? Because it, it, it felt like a pattern. And I thought to myself, where does this lead? If you're just like churning out a product on a calendar basis almost, is that what I wanted? And it wasn't what I wanted. The albums that resonate, some people are lucky enough to love every album they've ever made. I don't. I like every album I've ever made, but the ones I love are the ones that I was compelled to make. Right. Um, I didn't just make them because I like writing songs. Some of those albums that I made, I like like writing songs and I had enough of them to make a record. So I made a record. Hmm. And luckily each of those albums has a few songs that I was compelled to make. So it holds the whole thing together. But in the early days and in the days since that break, I only work on things that I'm compelled to do. I can't say no to. I just can't stop myself from doing it. That I'll sacrifice all the social stuff, that I'll that I'll that I'll choose the music over any other cool thing. Yeah. It's hard, I think, for um you know, I had um, Stone Gossard on the podcast talking about for Pearl Jam what it is to go from nothing to 10. And then every album after that, you're trying to chase 10. And they've made incredible albums and so many amazing uh, albums post that. But do you ever feel like, holy shit, you know, your biggest hit is the third song you wrote, right? I mean, Screaming Infidelities to me still. I don't know. Is, is that, it, is I that still? Hit, I, so I don't, I don't ever know what my biggest hit is. Sometimes I look at the Spotify play count. Um, <laughs> that's different though, because like, that's like a whole different generation finding things. That's true. At, at that's different true. time, and Very I think true. it's at least the uh, one most like you hear it, and everybody knows. Oh, it's Dashboard, and like she's still, probably the widest group of people. Wrote, it's true. It is the widest group. So that's true. It's the third song that I'd written, but it was only it was the third song I'd written for Dashboard. Right. So I'd written a ton of songs and put out a lot of records before there were different bands. I guess the thing is, I don't feel like I'm chasing, I don't know whether, I don't know what thing, I'm lucky enough to not know which thing I'm actually, <laughs> my success is measured against. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm kind of just like, well, I guess I'm measured against, or I will measure it against like my, what I perceive as like my few things of best work, my, my you know, collective number of songs, which I think there's probably about 10 that I think from all my records that I think were really, really spectacularly good in terms of songwriting. Right. And, and when I say spectacularly good, I mean that like I got really lucky and everything just fell right into place. And so I measured against some things that are more anomalous. I don't have a Pearl Jam 10. I re really kind of wish I did have a Pearl Jam 10 <laughs> to measure the, for, for a measuring stick there. But, but I get that that is a tough thing and it has been a tough thing to measure. There's also been like the arc of my career, like, I was kind of like famous in pop culture for a period and I'm not anymore. And so like, I could say like, well, my best success is behind me, but I do more, I sell more tickets to my shows now than then. Right. I just can walk through the mall without getting noticed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, who was in the mall anymore? I mean, not even I know. COVID. But well, I, I know. I miss the mall. Simplicity of the mall. I know, right? Um, so, 
Go to, that's where I got my ears pierced. Um, I still I still blame Claire's for one being slightly higher than the other. I mean, <laughs> they should have taken a little bit more care with their artistry. Um, I just did mine myself. When you, I know I probably should have. When you look at your later albums, what are the songs that stand out to you that are part of are there that are part of that ten or what's what's a song from your later albums? Like a, a more recent song. Yeah. I have a song called Heartbeat Here that to me is like holds a strong relationship to the song Hands Down. Hmm. It's about the same person where one is about like young love, the immense power of possibility that that can have. And this is about like this, the more intimate and important feeling of like supportive adult love and what you will do when you truly believe in somebody, how much you will give of yourself when you truly believe in somebody. And also like the more casual and quiet kind of like those minor moments are, 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 are really powerful. That's where real love happens. Hmm. And and it's discussed in that song Heartbeat here in a way that I think is well done. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Feel it in my soul. The pulse just grows. So loud and so So I love that that's the same person. Does that mean that this person has somehow been in your life or is it an imagining of that person? That song's about my wife. And I write a lot of songs about my wife. I write more songs about my wife than I would have expected to be able to write about my wife. (laughs) Because I think you think that you will have, you that there's a possibility that like, in a long, like the better your relationship gets, the less there is to mine for, for right, songs. For sure. It turns out it's not the case at all. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. And I love, I presume she was not yet your wife for hands down. No, no, no. She wouldn't be my, my girlfriend for many, many, many years to come. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. That's wonderful. So you pined away and wrote about her and eventually mm-hmm. she came around. She came around, yeah. <laughs> Um, so you had big plans for 2020. It was the 20 year anniversary of the band's beginning anniversary tour, playing all sorts of songs from a bunch of different albums. Uh, you released a greatest hits album, the best ones of the best ones, which I'm assuming is where most of those 10 are. And, uh, and then COVID hits. How far deep did you get into the tour? Just a couple months, huh? Yeah. So we were nearing the last leg of the first tour but it was an 18 month tour mm. so it's like there was a few breaks so we were about to have our first break it ended march 11th which was what we all know our sports fans know yeah. like that that's a day that, that, that that's a date we won't forget and i remember every detail of being backstage and and uh and hearing that there was like rumblings in the sports world that things were going to get pulled and i said man that's not good for this doesn't feel right. Like I remember saying it that right in that early morning, I was like, something doesn't feel right about gathering people together in a communal space. Mm. Just didn't feel right. By the time we took the stage that night, we knew it would be our last show. Yeah. So COVID hits, the tour is paused. Did you think, wait a couple months and we'll get right back to it? Or did you know we're probably going to need to cancel all these instead of just rescheduling? <laughs> 
I wanted to um, embolden all the people I work with and make everybody feel good. But I had just read a book about the pandemic, the the, the flu pandemic, mm. and I realized that this was a bad thing. I was like spooked by the book, right. so part of me kept thinking to myself, "You've just scared yourself by reading this this scary book." Right, uh, and it was happenstance that I had read it. Uh, really? And, and, uh, with oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. I had read it early on the show. I don't know why. I don't know. It just <laughs> came up as a suggestion on Amazon. And I, <laughs> and I took and I, I took it. Just some light yeah, flu, uh, Spanish flu uh, reading. And um, so I, I was, I was understanding. I was, uh, I, I think I, I think I was pretty early on to understand the severity of what was happening right. and how long it would take. So you're, killing time at home? Did you write music? Did you create? Did you take the time to do other things? How did you spend before the accident? We'll get to that in a second. How did you spend that before, time? Before the accident? Well, yeah. I, was, uh, I was doing all of the above. I was uh, making some hats, which I like to do. Nice. I was um, working on my car and working on my motorcycles and getting everything in running order. And that was fun to do. And then I was, um, I was writing. And I was just like enjoying being home I was like, I had decided because I was a little, I was happy to be on the road. I loved that tour. It was, I was out with friends and in, in, enjoying our fans and, and really enjoying the live experience. But I was like, I'm not going to mourn for it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to hope it comes back soon, but I'm really going to enjoy this time. So I was out running and hiking and all the things, whatever things we could do, I was doing them. And then the accident. So the motorcycle accident. Tell me about it, and are you are you fully recovered now, or still still some bruises and other things to deal with? I think I have some. I'm 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 really close to being fully healed now. I have some strengthening to do, and I might have to have one more procedure, but I think it'd be minor. Um, so I'm I'm good. I'm great. Uh, and it took a long time to get even to good. But yeah, the accident happened in June of last year, June eighth. And what happened? Well, I had. This is a beautiful day, beautiful summer day. Um, I'd gone out for a long drive with my wife and got home and thought I should probably run that motorcycle uh, a little bit. So I said, you know, I'm going to go for a short ride. And I kind of went out into the country. There's like where I live in Nashville. It's not far from from like nice country riding. I didn't go out into the dirt roads. I mean, the dirt trails, but I got to like the edge of them that neighborhood, the neighborhoods within the edge of those, this long, like 200 miles of dirt trails. And I was debating whether I should go out on the dirt riding, but I thought, you know, I'm alone. If, you know, it's like, you don't want to go out there when you're riding alone. So I just kind of went on a site, like a scenic road. And when I came around a curve, uh, going very slowly, maybe under 20 miles an hour, maybe even less, I came upon a spot of the road where there had been an accident that had been cleared there's just enough there that was still on the roadway mm. that I basically spun out like hydroplane yeah. on the gravel or what have you right. spun out on the gravel. And then I went in Tennessee. We have a lot of roads that don't have any shoulder or any, any um, curb or anything like that. And I just, I went into this ditch that was a, you know, maybe a six foot deep ditch and uh, it was a V shaped and the bike kind of went up the other side and flipped back and landed on me. Oh, so I broke both my shoulders and oh. um, they thought I broke my neck, which slowed everything down. Um, that was the part that was the only time where I had like real 
where the experience where the whole thing was like traumatic, where there was danger involved. I mean, it was severe, but where I thought, oh man, like what, there was a lot of what ifs going through my head when I, for those, I don't know, 12 hours where I thought maybe I'd broken my neck. I didn't, but I did sever in addition to like the many, many, many screws and plates and things that I had that, that where they rebuilt me, I had severed on both left and right arms, I'd severed the biceps and the deltoids and they had to be redraped and sewn again. And so that hindered my, between the surgeries and the lacerated muscles and all those things, I had a long road for recovery, very long. And the prognosis I think was, uh, you know, I'd love to go back and ask, I will Mm. go back at some point soon and ask the the doctor if, if he thought I would do well or not, I have done well, if he expected it, I think it could have gone either way. From what, I, when I discuss it with my physical therapist, I think that's the sense that they got, that they, that have gone a bit farther than they, they expected. But the part, Sarah, that was really tough for me was that I, um, when I got the strength to just even hold the guitar, it my my muscle memory is gone. Huh. Uh, from having been lacerated and redraped, it was just enough that it, I just- Different places. Everything was was wow. not functioning right, so I'd go to play the chord or, or fret the note, and uh, nothing would happen, or they would go to the wrong place, and and so that just took a lot of it took a lot of work. This is it's been so it's been an intensive year, which I think has been okay, all things considered. Like I didn't get sucked into the negativity that I might have felt because of COVID. I think that I had to stay positive or I was not gonna win this battle mm-hmm. uh, of recovery. And so I was, and I didn't win that battle every day, that positivity battle, but overall I did. And I think that it was about understanding that, that this wasn't gonna happen without the power of intention. And I just had to stick, I had to stick to it. And so, man, the amount of, if I looked like I should look for doing the amount of exercise I did, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be pretty cool. Right there with you, friend, <laughs> for other reasons. Um, well, I'm so glad that you're okay. It was certainly traumatic to hear about. And that is, it's kind of crazy. When I tore my Achilles, they had to take a piece of my calf out and like wrap it around it because it wasn't the right size and it wasn't going to recover. And so if I touch a certain part of my ankle, I feel it in my calf. You know, they they have oh, wow. those, those like ghost things where it remembers yeah. where it was. And that's fascinating and and awful to hear about having to relearn because those muscles and those things are kind of in different places now. Do you feel like you're all caught up on the music side? Um, in, on the music side, I feel really, I feel further ahead now as a player than before the accident. Oh, wow. I've really just sat down to just give it that same amount of energy that I gave it when I was young and it was all new. Yeah. And, but with the accumulated knowledge of all these years. Right. So it's, it's, it's pain. And the, it's just all this really joyful ending to that story. I think like I'm loving music so deeply now, knowing that it was almost taken away from me, mm-hmm. but not just music, like life, you know, like I'm with my family every day. I went out running today, you know, just, I didn't have to like go to physical therapy. I just went for a run and, you know, I'll probably have like aches and, pains like everybody else and i can just go on yeah now you get to be like all the athletes you watch just just aches and pains and various body parts all you know screws and pins into yeah yeah. i'm in a good club now that's right any plans for the tour resuming or live stuff coming up yeah 
I think that we're going to be on tour this year. Excellent. I, I would be surprised if we weren't out, out this year. The way things are going with the way people are seem to be adopt, adopting the vaccine. Yeah. And the way all the research being done about people being in rooms together, it, it, right. it looks good. 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 All right. So you got to, and you know, I look to sports of all things, you know, and they're, they're having people in attendance now that gives me mm-hmm. a lot of hope. Yeah. The outdoor stuff for sure feels really safe knowing what we know about, especially vaccinated people and the spread outside and all that stuff. So I can't wait to get back to music and you've got a book in the works and a record. So fans of you have a lot to look forward to on the horizon, which is, which is great. Um, before I let you go, you do have to do one last thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. There is no music. What do you do instead? Quilting. Quilting. Okay, so you make hats and clothes and art. I don't and- know how to quilt. Oh, it you just like those guys. That that they fig- they figured it out. They can just hang out. Yeah, on the couch. that's true. It seems like a pretty good good gig. It's not not a bad idea. Uh, two. What's the most scared you've ever been? Well, some of these nights, not knowing whether I was going to be able to use my arms again. Yeah, that was pretty scary. That makes sense. Number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Exercise. <laughs> It's like the opposite of Kenny Powers. I'm going to be the I best know, that's exerciser. Exactly what I thought. <laughs> I'm here to do sports. I ain't trying to be the best at exercise. <laughs> uh, number four, what current celebrity from TV or music or politics or whatever would you most like to be your best friend? Angela Kinsey. I'm listening to the Office Ladies podcast. Love that. Uh, number five, what's your biggest mostly meaningless pet peeve? <laughs> I take things too seriously. <laughs> Ah, it's worked out for you. All right. <laughs> it's that, it's that extra care given to literally everything that makes, uh, makes the music good. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my God. Uh, oh man. I was like, it's the cumulative embarrassment that I, I have like the, the reverberations from, which I felt before I came on this podcast <laughs> was like, oh my God, where she asked me about that thing from middle school and I embarrassed myself at one time. Well, I just All did. So, range, you know, the worst, worst possible scenario just happened. And look, you're making it through. I just asked you That's about true. the worst thing that ever happened in junior high and you're still here. Oh, no. I succeeded. <laughs> uh, does it involve bodily fluids? It usually does. No. Oh, no. Right. No. No, no pants no, wedding. Saying or- things going like, you ever like hear yourself saying stuff and you're like, wait, dude. Yeah. Don't. Oh. Yeah. No. Mm. I have an endless number of you know mm. just right around pubescent age, just dumb things that I did that I wish I could go back. Or I'm just some, somebody should have told me like about those eyebrows or other things. Number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, man, I want to be taller so bad. <laughs> I think I'm going to do it. I'm eating right. I got my eye on the prize. <laughs> I think it's going to happen. Uh, number eight, any band alive or dead can play at your next party. Who is it? Any band. Or just Oh musician. my God, that's loaded. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Because I know who my favorite musician is, but that's not the band I'd want to well, play. Well, it could be Guns a musician. And Roses. Oh, Guns N' Roses. No, because I would. it's too too somber. I'd want to hang out with him and understand Paul Simon. But Oh my God, Guns yes. Guns who I'd want to play at my party. I just saw Paul Simon a couple years ago on his... I, I guess farewell to her, although I never believe musicians when they say that. And it was so magical. It was like yeah. just 
And it was such a cool thing because there was music of his that I remembered listening to at like every stage of my life and these iconic songs that I remember driving cross country when I moved or in college or with my parents, like just remarkable. But Guns N' Roses, Guns N' Roses oh, and yeah, Pink cool. Floyd are the two bands that I said I think I would most like to see when they were at their peak. Uh, at their peak? Yeah. Are you kidding me? I, that's when you have to see them. That's who I want them here to play, but at their peak. Yeah, because I saw Guns uh, N' Roses well, a couple years ago and it... It wasn't the same exactly. Really, I think it. I think it holds up. But it was. Still, it was like, still a good show. But like, I want Axel. I want Axel dudes. with like peak cardio ability. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a little bit too much gasping in between notes. There wasn't a lot of running. Uh-huh. And then with Pink Floyd, I need Roger Waters and David Gilmour together. I've seen them both separately. Mm-hmm. I want them together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a dream. It is a dream. Uh, number nine. What would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, my biggest failure is probably leaving further scenes forever. Hmm. But you went back. Yeah. But I still left. When you left to go do dashboard, you mean? Just I didn't leave to do dashboard, but the the fact that I left before we had our chance to have, you know, really really found the whatever the next thing was that we were heading for. I'm still like curious what that was. Despite all the success with Dashboard. Yeah, it's not about the fact that I got, I mean, I, I would not have sacrificed Dashboard to do that either. Right. Because that was a great experience. But I still remain curious about what that right. would have been. Interesting. Where, where would we have gone? Yeah. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Kind, tenacious, uh, jackrabbit. <laughs> Okay, I like it. That is definitely the first time I've heard Jackrabbit. Um, And finally, who should I have in this podcast? Who is someone interesting, wonderful, delightful from any industry or background? Rain Wilson. Oh, I really do need to have him on. He's so funny. I mean, he's just well-read, hysterically funny, intelligent guy. Quirky dude. Uh, Thanks for doing the podcast. I love talking to you. And I love finding out that Hands Down and Heartbeats is the same woman and that it's your wife and that took her a while to come around. That's a wonderful story. I hope that's in the book, whatever the book is. Worth the wait. Yeah, worth the wait. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Sarah. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place where I rant about something or rave about something, tell you what to read, what to watch, what to listen to. And this week it's a story by Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post. The headline is, The NCAA sold out women's sports in a rights deal it fights to keep secret. Um, And shout out to Sally Jenkins for shining a light on this complete and utter BS from the NCAA. Surprising even for those who know how awful the NCAA is and how poorly they treat women athletes. If you read this story, it will make you even more, more angry. Here's a little bit of it. As part of the previously unknown terms, when the NCAA gave CBS Turner broad exclusive rights to the Men's Hoops Championship, it also gave the corporate sponsorship sales for all 90 NCAA championships. Get this, CBS gets to keep the revenue from 18 so-called NCAA corporate champions, such as AT&T and Coca-Cola, which comes to about $200 million as part of the basketball contract. Yet these companies get to advertise all over women's basketball, softball, volleyball, gymnastics, and other championships as a throw-in, as if they're bonus swimsuit calendars you get for opening an account. 
This creepy deal made in 2016 by NCAA President Mark Emmert is a raw one for every sport that isn't men's basketball, but it has an especially adverse effect on the women's championships because they are some of the fastest growing events in the marketplace. Yet they are prevented from corporate deals and revenue in important categories because of the sponsor exclusivities held and controlled by CBS on the men's contract they've been lashed to. Women's softball has exploded as a TV property. Its ratings on ESPN have grown by 40% in the past couple years. In basketball, the 2021 Women's Final Four ratings were up 22% over 2019. And Stanford's championship matchup with Arizona commanded an audience of 4 million. But Emmert didn't mention any of that value that they offer Coca-Cola and AT&T, value that the NCAA pre-sold in those umbrella deals with CBS that, quote, dramatically restrict women's exposure and investment, according to a person in advertising who's familiar with them. You can go read the full story at The Washington Post. Again, the headline is the NCAA sold out women's sports in a rights deal it fights to keep secret. This is how they claim that women's sports don't make money. When they don't have showers for the women of the College Softball World Series, when they don't have weights for the women's hoops tourney. Every other time they shortchange female athletes, they point back and say there's not enough revenue. They don't make enough money while we watch and see that four million people are watching a championship game, that ratings are up a ton. And none of that can translate it into money because they're cutting them out at the knees before they even have a chance. This is a violation of the spirit of Title IX, if not the actuality of Title IX. And every single school that lets Mark Emmert and the NCAA continue to do this and disadvantage and shortchange their women's programs is complicit. We need to be loud about holding schools and their ADs accountable for finding out why this is the case and changing it. Go read the story and go yell at some people with me about it. Man, I was in such a good mood when this podcast started. All right, I'm going to go back and start back at the beginning and listen to my interview with Chris again. That'll put me in a good mood. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate five stars, please, and give a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said. That's What She Said.